It's good to see all of you. I just want to say welcome to Zoe Community Church. Eric kind of gave a little spiel about why our church is called Zoe. Uh, It's a Greek word, so a lot of people are wondering why we named our church after a girl or uh, why we're affiliated with Zoe's Kitchen. We have been called before. Someone tried to make an order when Eric picked up one time. Uh, but it's zoe, it means life in Greek. Uh, it's one of three words for life in Greek. It's the one that refers to the true life that we have in Christ. Um, so anyway, that's my little thing. I'll, I'll say it every once in a while so we don't forget. Um, anyway, uh, if you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. Uh, my name's Jesse. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I haven't been up here since last year. Ha ha. It's been a while. I should, uh, I guess I missed my calling as a comedian. Um, I could tell by how, like, three of you smiled and one of you laughed. Thank you. Anyway, we're back in 2 Samuel. Um, we've been in this series for a while. So we started with 1 Samuel. And the thing is, in Hebrew, in the original language in which this was written, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel were just one book. Okay, but when they translated it into Greek, it didn't fit onto one scroll, so they split it up in half. So we started way back in the day with 1 Samuel, and it wasn't even in this building, if you can believe it. So if you were with us when we started 1 Samuel, and we talked about Hannah and how Samuel was born, then you are a true OG when it comes to Zoe. We started in the building next door. Uh, That was January of 2021. So a lot has changed since then. Texas froze. A lot of stuff happened. Now, we are uh, in chapter 18, so you can turn there. But we are in kind of the final stretch of this book and really of both of these books, kind of the climax or ending of this story that has spanned a lot of a lot of distance, a lot of ground. We started with Samuel. We saw Saul rise and then fall Uh, We've been with David for years uh, in his time and really with ours. Uh, And we are kind of getting to the end now where we're going to see the final years, the final days of David's kingship. And today we're ending, actually, we're kind of picking up where we left off uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, We're going to end the story of Absalom. Absalom is David's son. And Absalom has staged a coup against his own father. And David is on the ropes. Uh, David is on the run. And the battle lines have been drawn. And today, in our passage, everything is going to end. Second Samuel 18. And I'm going to read it, actually, because I think it's important for you to hear the entire thing. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 18. Then I'll pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Second Samuel 18, verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. 
And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Job said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would teach us to number our days. Things could be going so well according to our own plans, God, and yet the end could come in an instant. And we just read how Absalom was so concerned about being remembered. God, I pray that you would give us some of that sobriety, that we would remember, God, that our lives are but a vapor, a mist, here today and gone tomorrow, and that soon we will be remembered, hopefully for better, but maybe for worse. So God, I pray that today you would help us to evaluate our lives, to take stock of where we're at. God, I pray that we would think not just about today, but tomorrow, and ultimately about eternity. God, we know that you have placed eternity in our hearts. And I pray, God, that we would be drawn to that fact this afternoon. Use your word in our lives. Please, God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jenny had this mixtape that she would play all the time. She loved it. Five of her favorite songs were on this repeat, this loop for 90 minutes. 
Now, this mixtape was something that she listened to every day, multiple times, sometimes at least once. So over the course of years, she had played it hundreds of thousands of times, hundreds and thousands. I don't know exactly how many. She had a little portable speaker, so her family had the blessing of listening to it too. And her brother said it was literally the worst mixtape of all time. He said a SWAT team could take it to a negotiation as a last resort to kind of ruin people's lives. It was that unbearable. But for Jenny, she loved it. She couldn't get enough. Now, a little backstory. See, when Jenny was born, the doctors told her parents that she probably wasn't going to be able to walk or talk or even eat her own food. She was severely developmentally disabled. Now, Jenny's mom, she heard what the doctor said, but she wouldn't have it. And she dedicated her life to teaching Jenny to do all these things that they said she would never be able to do. And eventually she was able to do some of these things. So eventually she did talk a little bit. She did walk. She even got a job, I think, helping out, doing something. She even learned to use a fork so she could feed herself on her own. But it wasn't easy. And even though they were able to overcome all of these hurdles... She still was left at the developmental age of a four-year-old, perpetually, forever, hence the mixtape. And she had other obsessions, too. She loved watching and listening to things. So she loved the Jungle Book. I think it was the Disney one. And she would just play the Jungle Book over and over and over and over on the TV. As a matter of fact, two of the, two of the uh, five songs on her mixtape were Jungle Book songs. So it's just constantly listening to Baloo or whatever it was. So when Jenny's mom was diagnosed with cancer, and when she went in and out of remission, and when the cancer spread to her lymph nodes and uh, eventually to other parts of her body, and when the doctors told her that this was going to be it, there's no coming back from this. Jenny's mom decided to make a recording, knowing how much Jenny, her daughter, loved him. Jenny's mom decided that she would make a tape that Jenny could watch, hopefully something to become a regular part of Jenny's day, hopefully something that she could remember her by. Now, if you had the opportunity to do this, if you had this chance to record some final words, something that people, especially your loved ones, your family, your children, your spouse, could listen to after you were gone, what would you say? I mean, clearly we don't all get this opportunity to kind of control the narrative uh, at the very end of our lives to kind of leave people with a final impression. But if you did have that opportunity, and some people do, what would you try to communicate? What do you want to leave people with? What do you want people to remember you by? You know, there are certain things that cause us to think a little bit more seriously about what will be left when we're gone. Maybe when you have kids or grandkids, or maybe when you have a health scare, or maybe when someone close to you dies at a young age, it makes you think about life a little bit more. It makes you think about death a little bit more. And it'd be nice to at least get the opportunity for some final words. But even if you do do or don't, let me ask you, what do you think people will remember about you? What do you think will be kind of that enduring picture that people will have when they think back on who you were, when they hear your name? 
And do you think it'll be something that you're proud of? You know, I think about sometimes how this could go. I remember dad, he was always on his phone, right? Always on his phone. Oh yeah, mostly what I remember about mom was that she yelled a lot. Oh him, he would always say one thing. He'd always say, I'll be there. And then he wouldn't show up. He was a flake. Yeah, I remember her. She cared so much about what random people thought and didn't care enough about the truly important people. And it might not hopefully be all bad, all negative things. Hopefully there would be people who remember the good things. Oh yeah, I remember when he dropped everything, when he would drop everything in his life to help me out with little things around the house. Or I remember how she was there for me when no one else was. But hopefully kind of your mental gears are turning a little bit. Just ask yourself, just think about it in your own mind. How do I want to be remembered? Now, okay, you might be wondering why we're even talking about this morbid a little bit too much. Come on, I'm young, okay? Or at least I like to think of myself as being young. But the reason we're talking about this is because you heard the text, Absalom was young, or at least that's how David thought of him. The quote-unquote young man Absalom. Here in this text, he meets his end And what we read at the end of the passage is that he clearly thought a lot about how he would be remembered. In fact, he was so conscious of it, uh, of his legacy, that he built a monument for himself. And, you know, sure, most of us probably haven't. And I hope you don't, because that would be pretty narcissistic. Build a monument to yourself. But we have to understand, though, that every day, all the time, with our words and with our actions and with our choices, we are, in a sense, building monuments, are we not? We are building up a body of work, an impression, a legacy, that people, when they hear our name and think about us, they will look back on and remember. See, we're building lives, guys, that people will look back on and think about. You know, for the past few chapters, I know it's been a little while since we've been in 2 Samuel, but for the past few chapters, Absalom, David's third son, has taken center stage in the book of 2 Samuel. If you remember Amnon, who was David's firstborn, he assaulted, he raped his half-sister Tamar. And Tamar was full siblings with Absalom. And David, most likely out of soft-hearted affection for his firstborn son, mixed with guilt for his own failings and sins, he does nothing. And the sad thing is, Absalom knows that David isn't going to do anything. So Absalom is the one who takes Tamar into his own home. He takes care of her. And he decides on that day that he would do something to make Amnon pay. And bearing his own hate deep down in his heart for two years, he waited until the opportune time. And when it came, he killed his brother in cold blood. And when his relationship and his relationship with his father was never the same after this, for obvious reasons. Now, I think Absalom's story is one of the more tragic in all of Scripture. Why? Because really, if you read it and you kind of follow along with it, it was Absalom's love for his sister that grew and fueled his hate for the rest of his family. 
And his broken relationship with his father started in large part because of David's own failings. And now that, now that Absalom is rebelling, now that Absalom is trying to take the throne by force, what's even more sad to me, kind of just from a literary perspective, big picture, is how much you can see David in Absalom. We talked about this. You might remember. You can see some of Saul in Absalom. He's kind of a new Saul. He's like good looking. He looks like a king. He has this big head of hair, right? People like the way that he looks, just like they like the way that Saul looked. But more than this, don't forget that David's superpower was always how much people liked him, right? Even when Saul was king, even though Saul was good looking and handsome and stuff, the hearts of the men and the people and all of Israel went after David because David was just so charming, just so likable. And then what do we read in 2 Samuel fifteen six? So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel, He's like a little David, right? He has the charm. He has the likability. He has the same gifts, but he's used them for evil. And now Absalom has taken center stage and the battle lines are drawn and either David will be king or Absalom will be king. But what's interesting is that everything in our passage revolves around Absalom and yet Absalom will never talk again in this passage or in his life. In all of recorded scripture, there is no more words from Absalom. Biblically speaking, he doesn't get the chance to shape his legacy with some final statement. It's all about what he's already done. It's all about who he's already been. It's all about the monument of his life. So let's get into it, okay? Three three parts. We'll break down this text into three parts. Three points. First, the adored the adored, which is about how David views Absalom, his son. He adores this guy. Verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Now, okay, real quick, a couple of things to remember as we kind of ease into this text. David has been forced into action in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. Okay, he hasn't been like this. Ever since his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, one of his most loyal soldiers, he hasn't been the same David that we grew up knowing. He's been passive, he's been unengaged, he's been unsure, kind of doing nothing. But now Absalom's insurrection has sparked something in him. We see more emotion, more decision-making, more leadership. These are encouraging signs. You see him mustering the army. Verse 2. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. Now, David, he splits up the army into three, and don't miss the final detail. This time, he intends to actually go fight himself. And if you remember way back in the day, The reason why all of this started with Bathsheba and Uriah is because the army went out and David stayed home. He wasn't doing the duty of a king. But here he is, and it looks like another encouraging sign. At first, it's what he should have done at the beginning, but verse 3. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 
10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. So, okay, all the men, they understand the gravity of the situation. If David falls, it's game over. So they persuade him to stay back. And it makes sense. And David says, all right, verse four, the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. But pay attention, okay? But then pay attention to this next verse. Okay, David, okay, just picture it. David's standing. He's standing aside. And his army is made up of people who are willing to give up their lives for the king. They are outnumbered. They are outgunned. But they are marching off to battle against Absalom. And David is standing there. And they're walking by. And then David, he just can't help himself. Verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Every single person heard this. These are the final words that he gives his men who are marching off to battle. See, something else is on David's mind and on his heart besides victory, besides survival, besides their lives. And it's possible that here David reveals his true reason for wanting to go out personally. Maybe this is the reason why they're so quick to stop him from going out. David isn't thinking clearly. I mean, did you hear what he said? He said, deal gently with the young man, Absalom. Now, uh, deal gently might already be enough, but he calls Absalom the young man. And the word in Hebrew for young man is the word na'er. It could be translated young man as it is here in the ESV. But as commentators argue, it could be translated boy. It's a word that you use for kids, okay, for children. Absalom, is he a child? No, we already know he's a full-grown man. He has had four kids. He had three sons who probably passed away. That's why he built the monument. And he has a daughter that he named after his sister, Tamar. He is an adult. So why does David call him the young man, the boy, the kid Absalom? Well, it's kind of like this, okay? There's this old movie that a UCLA film student, I went to UCLA, that's why I had to drop the name here. Um, but there's this old movie in the 70s, I think, where a UCLA film stu- a student made, uh, made uh, he made this movie and there's this famous line that I think originated from this movie. But anyway, what happens in this movie is that there's a girl, small town girl, she moves kind of to this big city and she falls in love with a gangster, okay? A guy who's involved in organized crime. Uh, and he kind of uses her love to take advantage of her. So he goes to jail, um, but he, he pretends to love her and he has her bail him out with her savings, okay? Kind of under the pretense that they're gonna fall in love and get married or whatever, run away. So she gets him out, right? She, she's head over heels in love, And then he gets out and then he totally rejects her, right? And then he says the reason why he rejects her, and this is the reason I bring up this movie, the gangster tells the girl, the reason why I don't want to be with you is you got a face that only a mother could love. You got a face that only a mother could love. That's the origin of that line. And you understand what it means, right? I I feel like Hopefully you do. I don't even want to exposit this line, but I will. It's messed up. But what it means is you are so ugly that only your mother, 
who loves you for reasons that are beyond beauty standards, for reasons that can't be touched by reality, who loves you with a truly unconditional love, no conditions at all, could want to look at that face. There are no rose-colored glasses quite like parental affection. That's the point. And this is what we're seeing here with David. Look, everyone is in danger here. People are kicked out of their homes. These soldiers, they had to bring their families with them on the run. And now they're going to go out and fight against Absalom, who is unhinged and who wants to kill them. And David says, deal gently with the young man, Absalom. When he thinks Absalom, he doesn't think of a violent, unhinged man, a rebellious insurrectionist, someone who killed his own brother and is willing to kill his father and his friends. No, he thinks of a kid who needs to be uh, dealt with gently. You got to understand David's headspace here. His affection for his son is clouding his judgment. And parents, I think we can relate to this a little bit, right? Your kids are going nuts, right? Everyone's looking at you and you say these words, oh, I think they're just tired. Or maybe your daughter, right? She like pushed another kid and that kid's all crying and the other parents are like, hey, come on. And you're like, oh, she gets like that when she's hungry, right? Or maybe it's just a blanket excuse. No matter what your kid does, oh, he's just a kid. Give him a break, even though he's about to turn 17 or 42 or whatever it is. But this point isn't about parenting. This point is about how you're viewed. The point is about how you remember. There's something bigger that's going on here. We've already focused on David's failures as a parent. That's not what we're talking about here. What we need to focus on is Absalom himself. And what I want to point out to you is that there is a disconnect between who we've been shown more objectively, who we've been shown Absalom truly is, and how David is viewing him through the delusional lens of his parental affection. See, there will always be people who will love us no matter what. Even if you got a face only a mother could love, the good news is your mother will love it. And look, we gravitate toward these people. We got to understand this. People who take our side, even if we're in the wrong, right? We want people who will affirm our, our victimhood or our hero status, And maybe you're thinking, Pastor, even my own mother doesn't view me this way. No one supports me. Well, the truth is, a lot of times, the biggest enabler that we have is ourselves. And what does that mean? We make so many excuses for us. The only reason I fell again is because I was tired. The only reason I I sinned in that way was because I was hungry or hangry. Look, I'm just a kid. Think about it. What happened the last time someone tried to criticize you, even constructively? What happens the last time someone rebuked you or corrected you? What was your first response? Did you thank them? Did you objectively reevaluate your own life or were you defensive? Did you think, give me a break? See, we might not even realize it, but David's words oftentimes are our own thought process. Someone's going off on us, being hard on us, our parents or someone else, our boss. And then in our heads, we're thinking, dude, give me a break. Deal gently with me. I'm just a young man. I'm just a young woman. Jeez, come on. I remember at one of my old jobs, our boss sat us all down. 
everyone. And he said, look, I think things are going pretty well, but I just want to say that I think some of us need to work a little harder. And he said, I'll leave it at that. Okay, I want you to evaluate yourself. Okay, I'm not going to call anyone out. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I think some of us need to work a little bit harder. Okay, fast forward like a day, and me and my coworker are going out to pick up lunch. And he brings it up. He says, what did you think about what the boss said, right? Like, we need to work a little harder. He's like, I thought about it for myself. And I was like, nah, I think I'm good. Like, I work pretty hard. And the funny thing was, out of all the people in our office, I was thinking that it was probably him that our boss was talking about. So I just said, yeah, crazy how that goes. But it's crazy how much of a disconnect for real how crazy how it's crazy how much of a disconnect for real there can be between how someone views themselves and how everyone else does or even what reality is now it's possible i was wrong maybe he was talking about me you know maybe i wasn't viewing myself rightly and the boss was calling me out secretly and i just couldn't see it but see that's the issue and that's really the point we see here in these first 5 verses that it's definitely possible to be viewed and remembered wrongly especially by ourselves. And that might not seem like such a problem. Who doesn't want to be adored and defended no matter what you do? Don't you want to be positive about yourself? Look, it might not be bad for a while, but eventually you're probably going to find out the hard way that not everyone views you through the most optimistic rose-colored of lenses. And this leads to the second point. See, if David was going out with them and he saw Absalom, I am pretty sure he would have tried to bring him back alive. But Joab's not going to do that. The second point, the adversary. David, he adores Absalom no matter what he's done. Joab views him through the lens of what he has done, and he sees him as an enemy. Now, real quick, let's be clear. The irony of kind of this whole thing is that Absalom literally had a face that everyone loved. All right, not just his mother, not just his father. He was very handsome. Everyone thought so. He had charm that won people over. But beauty is skin deep. And charm can be fleeting as well. It only goes so far. There are some people who are going to judge you objectively for the actions that you take. And that's Joab. But look at verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. Keep reading. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Okay, so the battle of the, the details of the battle are sparse. It was fought in a forest, which made the fighting tough. 20,000 men fell, but a lot of them died because they were fighting in a forest. The terrain was difficult. All in all, David's side won. But that's not even close to the end of the story. Keep reading. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding along on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Okay, so understand, right? And we know this. Absalom, for all of his gifting, all of his talent, is no warrior. He's never fought. And he's riding along on his mule when his full head of hair, which he was so proud of, gets caught in the branches of this tree. And then his mule keeps going. And you can imagine kind of what happens. It's kind of caught. And then because the mule keeps going, he has to kind of pull himself up because 
His hair is just going to get ripped out of his head if he doesn't. So now he's hanging by the branch, by his arms, while his hair is tangled. It's hard for him to cut himself down without cutting his own head. So he's kind of trapped. He's very vulnerable. And then someone sees him, verse 10. And let me just read to you this entire exchange. It'll show you kind of how Joab is thinking. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there was nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Okay, there's a lot going on here. I mean, even the overkill of sending ten guys to finish him off. But first of all, notice Joab seems to care little to nothing about what David said. David's saying, okay, Last thing I want you to do, deal gently for my sake with the young man. Absalom Joe says, okay, uh uh-huh, yeah, sure. And then he just goes and he kills him the first chance that he gets with three spears. Now we'll talk more about how Joab defied David next week and kind of their relationship. This is not over between the two of them. But what we have to understand here is that Joab doesn't view Absalom the same. And Joab is actually related to him too. They're cousins, okay? They probably grew up hanging out to a certain extent. He doesn't view him through some sort of familial, sentimental lens, even though they're family. He also doesn't view him only as the king's son, as this rando guy does. He says, I'm not going to attack the king's son, no way. Joab views Absalom differently. He views him as the biggest danger to the kingdom, and he's not wrong. You know, I read something from a reporter down in Mexico. Uh, he lived in Mexico. And he said he noticed something interesting, kind of propaganda, if you will. He would fly on airplanes, you know, from city to city. He would look at the brochure or like the ads. And he said that sometimes he would see these beautiful ads for tourist locations, trying to get, you know, foreign tourists or people to go to these places, beautiful beaches and sunsets and all of this good food. But being a local in Mexico, he knew that some of these places that were being advertised were the most dangerous places in the country, overrun by like cartel violence and stuff. So he's like, no Mexican person's ever going to want to go to these places because they know, but they're trying to trick like Americans and stuff to go to these places. So you have this contrast. In the pictures, everything looks great, but in reality, you probably want to stay away if you know what's good for you. See, there are levels to how things appear, how things look. There are layers. There's a superficial way of looking just at the veneer, at the surface of things. And there, then there's the truth that's underneath all of it. See, okay, Absalom, understand this. He is David's son, but he's not just David's son. He's also a murderer. He's a rebel. And all of his recent actions have shown him to be someone you can't, ju- uh, you can't just deal gently with. Remember Absalom. I mean, Joab knows how unhinged Absalom is. Absalom set his field on fire when he wanted to get his attention. Absalom is a violent guy. And now he has gathered a huge army for the express purpose of killing his own father. 
and even his own cousin. Joab, he's a harsh guy, but he's also a lot more realistic about the situation than David was. He sees Absalom for more of who he really is, more for who he has revealed himself to be. And yes, he is heartless. But again, who's closer to the truth? And the takeaway here is simple, and we have to understand this. Even if we, even if we have people who are always on our side, even if we have people who are willing to overlook certain things about us, even if we view ourselves in a generally favorable light and we like to kind of spin the narrative about us. You know, I wasn't immature. I was just fun-loving. I'm not a flake. I'm just a free spirit. I'm not mean. I just tell it like it is. We like to rebrand the things about us. You will be seen and judged and remembered for your actions, period. And not everyone is going to be so gracious or so willing to sweep certain things under the rug. You've heard it said, actions have consequences. Let that marinate in your mind for a second. Actions have consequences. Let that sink in. Actions have consequences. The thing is, we like to pretend that this isn't the case. It's why we like the idea of having the chance to say some last words. We like to think that we have the power to set the narrative at the end of our lives, to merely speak our legacy into into existence. And like the tourist ads for dangerous locations in Mexico, we like to think that if we can just make things look nice, we'll be all right. And yes, it will work for some people. Some people will remember you in a good way. Propaganda does work. You can fool a lot of people. But there will always be some in the know who see right through it. And they will see what you've really done. And it's usually the people who live with you. It's kind of like how the reporter, he lived in Mexico, he knew. It's the people who live with you. They'll figure you out for sure, roommates and spouses and children, and not just in your house, but people who live in the vicinity of your life, friends and church family and coworkers. They'll see how you act when your guard is down. They'll see what happens after you come home from work or you come home from church. As Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. We are what we repeatedly do. They'll see what you do every day, meaning they'll see who you truly are. What do you think they'll say? I think the hardest hitting part about this is when you think about what your kids will say about you. What did dad or mom always do? What do they do nonstop, constantly, repeatedly? What about the guy who sat next to you at work for 30 years? What about your next door neighbor? I mean, sure, the Christmas cards show you all smiling, just one big happy family, but what's really going on? How often are you losing your temper? How many hours are you spending on your phone? I preach to myself, what kind of parent, what kind of spouse, what kind of coworker, what kind of witness do your day-to-day actions reveal you to be in reality? Because I'm sure that you have some people in your life right now who are willing to tell you. I don't think we want to go to those people, but there are people who are willing to tell you the ugly truth about yourself. You know, one of the sobering things about this text is that Joab has no sympathy for Absalom at all. He personally spears him through, look at it, verse 14, while he was still alive. 
I mean, he saw it. It wasn't in the back. He just walked up to his cousin and he speared him right through the chest. And yes, it's harsh. But you got to understand, Absalom made Joab his adversary first. And Joab returned the favor. So don't be surprised when people react to the way that you act. And if you could go, you know, kind of travel and somehow see your own funeral, don't be surprised when people remember you for how you really were. And this leads to the third and final point. We've seen how David viewed Absalom and how Joab viewed Absalom, but there's something deeper here, something about something uh, uh, about his legacy that's running throughout this passage. And this leads to the final point, the accursed. So we had the adored, the adversary, the accursed, which is about how God views Absalom. Read verse 16, and we'll read to the end of the passage. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. When Absalom was still alive, he made a monument for himself. He was very self-conscious about the fact that he had no surviving sons to carry on his name. And so he thought that he would set up this pillar in the king's valley and it would be a good way for people to remember him when he was gone as royalty. And you could see him trying to make do, make good on that, trying to become the king himself. But now he is gone. And the elephant in the room Okay, when it comes to talk about legacy and being remembered and all of that, is the fact that someday you will be gone, that you will die. We don't want to talk about death, but when you talk about legacy, that is the other side of the coin. Time is short. It's why Jenny's mom made that video. She knew her time was about to run out, and soon she wouldn't be there to help Jenny with her day. And it is pretty sad. Uh, Jenny's brother was talking about the making of the video. And he just said, maybe you wouldn't be able to tell if you weren't part of the family. But he could totally tell that she's struggling to make this video. Right? She's been going through chemo. She's kind of in her last day. She's wearing a wig. Uh, she's struggling to breathe. She's really trying to control it. But if you know, you can tell that she's barely able to get the words out. She had lung cancer. We don't like to dwell on those things. Those details, but we have to, for this text does, because it's interesting how it focuses so little on some things and so much on others. There's so little talk about the actual battle, and there's so much talk about Absalom hanging in a tree. There's nothing about what Absalom must have said while he was crying out for help, what he said to Joab as he saw Joab approaching with three spears in his final moments, but there's so much emphasis on the significance of where he was, of what he was doing in his final moments. It shows what God is focused on here. Look back at verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And of course, this is a way to say that he was in the air above the ground, 
But why this language? Why so poetic? Why the imagery? Suspended between heaven and earth. As one commentator says, Absalom is suspended truly between life and death. And what happens when you cross that bridge? That's the question that the text wants us to think about. What happens when you cross that bridge between earth and heaven, between life and death? See, when you leave this plane of existence, when you end this life, understand that you're on your way to meet your maker. You're on your way to meet God. And at that moment, when you meet him, when you draw your final breath, what matters more than what the people around you thought about you, for better or for worse, is what God thinks of you. See, what the text wants us to get at is Absalom wanted to be remembered. How did God remember him? How did God view him? What did God think about him? The clues are everywhere in this passage. One, how does Absalom get stuck? He gets stuck by his head. The details are there. It's his hair. And we read earlier that he was so vain about his hair. He would grow it out every year and then he would weigh it just to show people, just to stick it to those bald guys, you know, like this is the hair that I got. He was so vain. And in a very real sense, it was his pride that got him stuck. And what does the scripture say? Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And God does what to the prideful? He opposes them. Two, how is Absalom buried? He's thrown into a pit and he's covered with a bunch of stones, a heap of stones, it says. The same language was used all the way back in the book of Joshua when Achan disobeyed the word of the Lord and betrayed his fellow countrymen and led to some of their deaths. And he was stoned to death for his offense. Joshua 7.26 says that they raised over him, Achan, a great heap of stones that remains to this day. It's the same imagery. See, we are left with a picture of Absalom that resembles what happened to Achan, the man who was accursed by God, who made God furious. And then three, look at verse 10. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom, what? Hanging in a tree or hanging in an oak. The Hebrew word for hanging there is unique, actually. As a matter of fact, it's only found in one other place that I know of in the entire Old Testament. And that place is Deuteronomy 21. And this is what it says. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. See, in the Hebrew mind, they understood this because of the law. That if you're going to kill somebody and you hang them, then that is the worst way for them to die, to hang them on a tree because it shows that God is cursing them. The idea of hanging from a tree was burned into the Hebrew brain as a curse. So all the clues are pointing to one thing, that Absalom was accursed by God, that Absalom was an enemy of God. And sure, okay, David failed in many ways. uh, Amnon was not a good guy, but Absalom dared to set himself up against the Lord and against his anointed. He couldn't rebel against David without also rebelling against God. And he died in that rebellion. And this means, and I don't say this lightly, it means that when Absalom was hanging from that tree, suspended between heaven and earth. 
that was the closest that he ever got to heaven. That was the closest he ever got. Look, God is just. He weighs our deeds, you understand? And he calls us to account even for every word that we speak. And more than this, he even knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And maybe, okay, you don't think you're such a bad person. You're just a young man or just a young woman. But if we're honest, we've all rebelled against God. That's what the Bible says, for all have sinned. We are what we repeatedly do. And when we sin, when we disobey God's commandments, we prove ourselves to be rebels. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden by taking of the fruit. It's what we do ourselves when we gossip or when we tell a lie or when we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. Look, it might not even be as crazy as trying to rebel against the Lord's anointed by raising up an army and and trying to go after him with swords. But rebellion is rebellion. And this is where it ends. The wages of rebellion is a curse. When we rebel, we invite the curse of God upon us, ultimately an eternity in hell. At the end of the day, at the end of your life, understand there's nothing more important than what God thinks of you. For only he has authority over your eternal destiny. Only he has the right to judge. So think about this. What do you think God would make of your life right now? I mean, our lives are short. They end just like that. Do you feel confident that you will be welcomed by him into the celestial city? If so, why do you feel so confident? If we're honest... For honest, though, I'm guessing some of us are feeling a little worried. I mean, I try my best, right? but I know I fall short. As a parent, as a spouse, as a pastor, as a person, and now I feel all guilty. Well, turn with me to Galatians 3. This is where we'll go. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 3. It's right after the Corinthian books. Galatians 3, and we'll read from verse 10. And there's a lot in here. Okay, don't worry about it. I just want to show you one thing. Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And then here it is, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You can stop there. What Paul is saying here is that you can't do it. No one has been able to do it. You can't be perfect before God. If you try to do the law, you will fail and you will be accursed. Every single person, everyone is a rebel except Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And maybe now you understand what Jesus had to do. 
All of us are in Absalom's place. All of us are in his shoes. All of us hang suspended between heaven and earth, and we're not headed in the right direction. But God's own beloved son was accursed, and not because he ever rebelled, but because of our sake and our rebellion. Between heaven and earth, he hung upon a tree, and it wasn't three javelins, but it was three nails between his hands and his feet, keeping him there. And he bore the just wrath of God on himself so that we who are rebels by our actions could be accepted as beloved children by grace through faith. See, we should be worried about our performance. But if you are, stop looking at yourself. Stop thinking about how you will be remembered and look to Jesus and remember him and what he did. And when you do this, the whole game changes. Death itself is transformed, no longer something to be feared, but a passageway to the presence of the Father. Judgment is transformed. You have the righteousness of Christ now. So instead of condemnation, you look forward to a crown. And this is where we started with our scripture reading today. Paul said this. He said, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And that's it. Our lives are just poured out like that. But if you look to Christ, then everything changes. It's how God sees you. It's how God judges you. It's how God remembers you. So live your life for him. And who cares what anyone else thinks? Who cares what anyone else remembers? Because they aren't going to be there in the end. God will. We'll close with this. Two stories. Normally it's one. But let me wrap up what happened with Jenny's mom's tape. She recorded the video. She put all this time and effort. She put her whole heart into making this video for Jenny. And what happened was Jenny didn't watch it. I think the family showed it to her a couple of times. But she already had a routine. She loved the Jungle Book. She loved her mixtape. So that tape that her mom made just got buried somewhere in the drawer. And she just went on with her life. And her brother was talking about it. So he knew. And it's kind of sad. And it's really sobering. Because Jenny's mom not only dedicated her, uh, put her whole heart into that tape, but she dedicated her life to Jenny. And it's not Jenny's fault, of course, but Jenny simply forgot about the tape and forgot about her. And this is the kind of sad and really sobering reality that we all need to face. We, whether we're remembered well by our kids or our grandkids or not, On a long enough timeline, the vast majority of us, if not all of us, will be forgotten. Absalom's monument, it was still there when this was written, but it's gone now. And we have no idea where it is. Second story. It's recorded for us in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. The Sadducees confront Jesus. You might remember this story. They confront Jesus because they don't agree with him. They don't like what he's doing. And they try to trap him with a question. They say, imagine that there's a married couple and, you know, the husband passes away. So the wife gets remarried. And then this happens a number of times and she keeps getting remarried and her husbands keep dying. In the resurrection, they say, since you believe in a resurrection, Jesus, in the resurrection, who will she be married to? And they're trying to make Jesus look like a fool. 
Like, why would you believe in an eternal life? It doesn't even make sense according to the law. But Jesus wasn't phased at all. He said, you don't know the power of God and you don't know the Bible. First off, there's no marriage in heaven. Second, what did God say to Moses? And they loved Moses. So he brings up Moses. He says, God said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not I was the God, but I am the God. And he says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And we could spend a whole sermon unpacking just that statement. But let me leave you with this. Life is short and eternity is long. Life is short and eternity is long. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are not dead. They are alive with God right now. And the apostle Paul He is alive right now, and so are all those who have loved his appearing. So make it your aim. If you're thinking about legacy and how you'll be remembered, make it your aim to hear these words at the end of your life, but not at the end of everything. Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't live for yourself. Don't even live for those who will come after you. Live for the only one whose opinion matters forever. And for those who live by faith, if you can grasp this, understand that God is not ashamed to be called your God, for he has prepared a city for you, Hebrews 11. So friends, if God remembers you, if God remembers you, let me leave you with this. If God remembers you, it doesn't matter if everyone else forgets. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that it would be the desire of every single person in this room for our church, God. I pray that we would make it our aim, God, to please you. To live not for ourselves, but to live for the glory of Christ. And God, it doesn't matter if Zoe Community Church, if our name is remembered in the future, all that matters God, is our relationship with you and that the name of Jesus Christ might be glorified for all eternity. So God, I pray that you would, like I prayed in the beginning, God, I pray that you would teach us to number our days and pray that you'd help us to live in light of the eternal tomorrow. And God, I pray, I pray, God, that we would not waste the time that we have now. God, we're thankful We look to you. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.